Well, hello and welcome to Geeking with Destination Venus. Uh, Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And if I sound a little more subdued than normal, that's because we're starting with some really sad news. Uh, I'm not putting this in the news section. The news section is full of frippery and nonsense. This actually kind of matters, to me at least. It is with huge, huge sadness that I have to report on the death of the comics artist Ian Gibson. Not, perhaps, the household name that I feel he deserved to be. You may never have heard of him. There are many comics fans who've never heard of Ian Gibson. And, well, that's a huge shame as well. Uh, He was a fantastic writer, but more than anything, he was one of the finest black and white line art artists I have ever seen. He had a career spanning ooh, 50 years or so, um, and he was responsible for some of 2000 AD's most iconic artwork, uh, from The Ballad of Halo Jones to Robo Hunter and well beyond. Um, it always struck me as odd, reading 2000 AD back in the day, that Gibson would occasionally work under pen names, um, particularly uh, Emberton and Cute Work. And that always struck me as weird because... His heart is so distinctive. You would look at it and you would say, oh, an Ian Gibson story. And then you'd look at the credits and see it was by Emberton and you'd say, now that's Ian Gibson. It's, it's a very, very distinctive style. At a time when a lot of artists were trying to be a little bit more samey, Gibson never compromised. Uh, he was born in 1946 uh, and got his break like so many people. Uh, in that era uh, on fanzines but by 1973 he was getting professional work Uh, his art was appeared in the pocket chiller library uh, and and let's be honest this was the big one at the time the bionic woman annual Uh, he also did a lot of work for hammer Um, he as i say always had a distinctive style and, you know, that did not always find favour. He um, tried to get work with the publisher IPC, which was like the, a big British publisher of comics at the time. Uh, and they they rejected him for, for, for work for their range of girls comics um, because his girls that he drew were, were too skinny. Uh, and so he then worked with the renowned Spanish artist uh, Blas Gallego, uh, who was in London at the time, uh, with Gallego inking over Gibson's pencils. Uh, and it was this work on Deathwish uh, for Valiant Comic in 1975 that marked the beginning of a decades-long collaboration with the writer and editor, the great John Wagner, uh, which again is a name that isn't as much of a household name as it deserves to be. Wagner was, of course, involved in 2080. After the launch of 2080 in 1977, Gibson did a whole Lou of work uh, on Judge Dredd, including some episodes of the very first Judge Dredd epic, which is called Robot Wars. And it was Gibson's robots in that storyline that inspired John Wagner to come up with a, a series called Sam Slade, Robo Hunter. This is the first work that really brought Gibson's art to mass fan recognition. 
Uh, it was a long-running series about uh, a sort of... If they'd ever made a movie of it, he should have been played by a, a middle-aged Harrison Ford, is, is, is the kind of character we've got here. Bruce Willis could probably have carried it off. Uh, he's a wise-cracking bounty hunter called Sam Slade who tracks uh, runaway or errant robots. Um, the first episode was actually drawn by the Spanish artist, uh, Jose Ferrer, uh, but Gibson very quickly became the go-to artist for that strip, uh, an absolute fan favourite. It was Robo Hunter that really cemented his place in the pantheon of great 2000 AD artists and, I would argue, great British comics artists, full stop. Not that he was limited just to 2000 AD or just even to British comics. Um, he did an awful lot of work for 2000 AD. Uh, he did Anderson Side Division. He did Ace Trucking Co. Uh, but he also worked across the pond. Uh, he worked on Mr. Miracle uh, for DC. Uh, he worked on the, the major DC um, crossover series, Millennium, um, back in the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, uh, he did a lot of pre-production visuals um, for the CGI animated TV series Reboot, which listeners of a certain age will remember with fondness. Um, and he also created the Chronicles of Genghis Grimtoad at this time. But if we're looking for the finest example of just how brilliant Gibson's artwork can be, you only have to look at a collaboration he did with a certain Alan Moore. They first worked together in 1981 uh, on a Future Shock story in 2000 AD called Grok's Bearing Gifts, which I don't think I've ever read. I had a, a quick look online today and I couldn't find it anywhere. And my, my personal 2000 AD collection doesn't go quite that far. And in any case, that's not the collaboration that really made both their names. Alan Moore was a rising star in 1981. He was still a rising star when... A couple of years later, he worked with Gibson again on the three-book series, The Ballad of Halo Jones. I think this is probably the best thing that Alan Moore ever wrote. And actually, its brilliance is in large part down to the storytelling power of Gibson's artwork. Um, it's a it's been described as a powerfully feminist and forward-thinking series, which actually I think is fair. Uh, it's about Halo, a young woman who is desperate to escape the, the claustrophobic and incredibly dangerous floating housing estate, a kind of slum housing project called The Hoop, uh, full of people who are so rejected by society that they're, they're not even allowed on shore unless they can prove they've got a valid reason for being there. Um, Gibson and Moore worked together closely, uh, and between them, they came up with a very futuristic but completely relatable world. Uh, anyone who grew up on a British housing estate, um, particularly uh, sort of those sort of big 1950s blocks of flats, will recognise the hoop. I do. I, I didn't grow up in such a place, uh, but I, I knew them. And yeah, you, you recognise the hoop if if you're from social housing in the 70s. You really do. The story follows Halo as she works to get out, not just of that place, but of that life and make something bigger and better for herself. 
She leaves Earth. She faces betrayal. Uh, she faces heartbreak. Uh, and you can see Halo develop as a person as the story goes on. And that is really in very large part to Gibson's incredibly exp expressive work. Uh, I think something else that should be said for Gibson and the way he drew women in particular, and I think probably part of the success of Halo Jones is rooted in this, is that he never went into that whole bad girl art thing um, that overly sexualizes characters. It's not to say that he was in any way prudish in his art. Uh, he did the odd, um, let's call them erotic pinups, um, mostly, I think, as a sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of joke. Um, there was a bit of a controversy. He did a uh, a sketch for, uh, I think it was a Bristol Comics Expo a few years ago, uh, which I think he referred to it as Topless Halo, and it was a character who looked very much like Halo Jones, drawn topless. Uh, and that really annoyed quite a lot of people. Uh, but I, I don't think his his intention was to be misogynistic or in any way over overtly sexualizing the character his art is not that um i would argue that halo in particular but the, the women in halo jones in general uh, a lot of them are actually quite sexy but they're not sexualized um his sense of anatomy is perfectly on point and most of the characters he draws are actually covered from the neck to the toe you know he, he's not drawing the kind of overtly sexualized stuff that became so popular in the late 80s and early 90s. He he didn't need to, to be honest. Um, I, I know I don't normally do show notes for this show anymore, but I am just going to stick a page of examples of Gibson's art, uh, just so you can have a look at it if you've never seen it, because I think his work should be more widely known even than it is, because he is such an incredible draftsman. His composition, his character design, uh, the way he drew just objects is so brilliant. I think everybody should see it. So if you go to um, www.destinationvenus.co.uk and go to the blog section and look for Geeking with Destination Venus episode 107 and you will find some examples of work by the great Ian Gibson. Uh, he, he was ill for a while. Um, I never had the privilege of meeting Ian Gibson, uh, which is something I will forever regret because I could have. Uh, I was at conventions he was at. I could have gone and seen him and got a sketch and done all of that. Uh, and I never did. because It's one of those things where you kind of think, oh, there'll be another opportunity. And there never was. So that's on me. By all accounts, he was an incredibly nice guy. I followed him on social media for many years and he always came across as the consummate professional and an incredibly just friendly guy on there. Uh, his last social media post was a couple of weeks ago in which he apologised for being so ill that he didn't have the energy to post. That's the kind of guy he was. And that's the kind of guy we've lost. An immense talent. Um, 77 isn't young, but it's also not old these days either. I am just incredibly sad that we will not see any more fantastic Ian Gibson art and that such a talent is no longer with us. Our sincere condolences go out to his family and his friends and everyone who loved him.
And since we start in such a sombre fashion, it would be wrong to also not acknowledge the death of the actor Andre Brewer, who has died after a brief illness at the age of 61. Um, he's probably best known for playing Captain Raymond Holt uh, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I first came across his work uh, in the same way that, that America actually came across his work, really, I think. Uh, in the 90s cop show um, Homicide, Life on the Street. I loved his character in that, and I was really amused by his casting in Brooklyn Nine-Nine to play as a similar sort of character in a completely different way. Um, he was a ridiculously talented actor. He brought such charm and wit to the character of Raymond Holt. Long-time listeners will know how much I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I don't think Nine-Nine would have been the show it was without his performance. So, again, our sincere condolences go to his family and his friends. And if everyone could stop dying now, that would be awesome. Thank you. And on that bombshell, let's talk about something more positive, shall we? I think we've got a lot of positive to say about this. We have seen now the third and final of the Doctor Who 60th anniversary specials and this weird interregnum period between the 13th Doctor leaving and the 15th Doctor arriving is officially done. So how did David Tennant and Catherine Tate handle the finale? Brilliantly, I think it's fair to say. Do I have complicated feelings about it? And are there things that I don't think quite worked? Oh, oh, heck yes. It's Doctor Who, after all. But overall, I think this was exactly the finale that we needed. It was exactly the introduction of the new Doctor that we needed. And I could not be more excited for Christmas Day. But I can't see how I'm going to review any of this without spoilers. So. If you have not yet seen it and you intend to, can I suggest that you go and make a cup of tea and then drink it? Because probably we're going to be here for a little bit now. So from this point forward, the spoiler horn will be sounding and there are going to be massive spoilers for all three, probably, of the David Tennant 60th anniversary Doctor Who specials. Don't say I didn't warn you, folks. Allons-y! Spoilers! Spoilers! Okay, first up, I am not going to replicate the whole looping trick I did the other week where I turned myself into a massive applauding audience. I'm not going to do that because I've done it once already and it was a bit of a cheap trick. But let's just imagine that I did because my overall reaction to this whole thing is unbelievably positive. But let's focus on the finale, the giggle. Uh, The giggle in question is a thing. A real thing that actually happened. Scottish inventor Jean Logie Baird really did broadcast a, a puppet head called Stooky Bill as the very first image ever transmitted by television. That is a real thing that really, really happened. As he transmitted the image of the aforementioned Stooky Bill, 
from one room to another. That's 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 true. That's an actual thing. And it's something that has been in Russell T. Davis's head, clearly, for some time. He always had this idea that he wanted to do something with that puppet, which is what ultimately led to the idea that he was going to bring back the particular classic villain that he brought back for this episode, the Toymaker, as we're now calling him. We're going to get into the character of the Toymaker and why we no longer call him Celestial and why that word was dropped in rather cleverly, I thought, in a little bit. There's, there's so much to unpack here. But his thinking was, if we're going to be talking about puppets, we need a puppet master. And in Doctor Who canon, who is the most powerful villain who would be appropriate for toys? Well, the character known as the Celestial Toymaker, back from the William Hartnell era, I think, is a 1966 episode. And here, played by the brilliant... Neil Patrick Harris, an actor that I will forever think of as Doogie Howser, MD. Yes, that's a that's an early 90s reference, folks. Young people may have to Google him. He's also the psychic in um, Starship Troopers. And generally speaking, brilliant in everything he's in. And this is another stunning performance. I did wonder who was going to chew the scenery the most and have the most fun in this episode. Uh, whether it was going to be Neil Patrick Harris or David Tennant. In fact, I think they probably chew the scenery equally and they both do it magnificently. So what's the story? Well, the idea is that we pick up exactly where we left off. The Doctor, Donna and Wilfred Mott are in an alley in London and the world has gone completely bug nuts. The Doctor has just enough time to interrupt somebody who's about to get himself run over in a fit of rage to get some exposition, which tells us that about two days before, everybody had suddenly started thinking that they were right and everybody else was wrong and nobody would back down from an argument and everything had just gone crazy from there. Essentially, the world had turned into Twitter and that's not the only on-the-nose reference that we get in this. Uh, I do think Russell T. Davies was skirting a little bit too close to being a little bit too on-the-nose a lot of the time in this. If I've got a criticism, that would be it. But anyway, we very quickly get Unit turning up. Now, I like the way they did this because they had to do something with Wilfred. We don't actually see Wilfred in this episode, uh, except from the distance. Um, that may be an actor in a wig that we see from a distance. Uh, it may even have been a mannequin sitting in that wheelchair because Bernard Cribbins certainly didn't film anything because he was too ill. Uh, he, he shot what we saw last week at the end of last week's show and was too ill to shoot anything else. That, I suspect, is why, as the unit team descends, Donna immediately says, never mind us, your priority is to get him to safety. And then we don't have to, 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 to worry about where Wilf is for the rest of the episode. I liked that. Um, I liked that they didn't just kill Wilfred off, and I liked that they didn't decide, okay, we've only got that one scene with Bernard Cribbins, we probably just have to cut that and leave Wilfred out of the show completely. They could have done that. I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad we got that last performance from Bernard Cribbins. Anyway, uh, the Doctor and Donna are then whisked in black helicopters to Unit HQ, which appears to be a cut-down version of the Avengers Tower which has appeared in the middle of London, don't ask. 
I think is where I'm at with that. The Doctor does comment on it briefly when he first sees Kate Lethbridge-Stewart. He has a throwaway line along the lines of, blimey, your dad worked really hard to keep this thing secret. and Now look at you. Which, again, I liked. Uh, there's also a brilliant one-liner in which he reacts to Unit's new scientific advisor by saying, Shirley, you can't be serious. Which, I- I'm so pleased. You can't have a character called Shirley and not shoe- shoehorn that joke in somewhere. So I'm glad they got that out of the way now. As Kate Lethbridge-Stewart is explaining the situation to the Doctor, the I- the fact that this problem of everyone thinking they're right is now global and apparently tied to the activation of a South Korean TV satellite, which has meant that the whole of the world now has access to television. We enter what is clearly going to be the new unit set. You didn't, they didn't build that just for this episode. There's no way we're not seeing that again, basically. In there, we have lots of unit guards. We have Kate Lethbridge-Stewart. We have Shirley, whose last name I can't remember, the unit science advisor. And of course, we also have Bonnie Langford as Mel. I'm a Doctor Who fan from the 80s. I never liked Mel because she was played by Bonnie Langford, which I thought at the time was stunt casting, and I was probably right. But my goodness, she's good. I I need to go back and watch some of those old Sylvester McCoy, Colin Baker episodes that Mel was in, because Bonnie Langford is much better at this than I remember. And I'm, I'm going to be vaguely surprised if we don't see her again as well. Probably didn't mean anything to new Who viewers. Who she was 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 very quickly established in a couple of lines of dialogue, and then off we go to the races. Uh, a demonstration of what's causing the problem. There's there are something is causing people's brainwaves to spike in a particular way, and we get to see Kate Lethbridge Stewart without the protection of the science fiction gizmo that's supposed to be protecting people. We also establish that having travelled in the TARDIS is probably protective against this thing. And we get to see Donna come to the fore. She figures out that the peaks could represent notes, musical notes. And she figures this out because, as she says, she spent four years trying to teach her daughter the recorder. And I like that acknowledgement. That just because you haven't spent your life like Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, for example, being incredibly well-trained and professional does not mean you don't learn stuff through your actual life. Because there is now musical notation, Bonnie Langford has an excuse for singing. And she points out that this is an arpeggio. (laughs) And when she sees that, every human in the room recognises it. I say every human because there are two people in the room who are not human who don't respond to that arpeggio. One is the Doctor, the other is a robot, whose name I can't remember and who I don't believe we've ever seen before. So if you're new to Doctor Who and you were wondering who the weird robot in the corner was, don't worry about it. Everybody else was wondering that too. I suspect his existence will be explained in a forthcoming unit TV show or in the forthcoming next season of Doctor Who. One of the two. But because it's they work out the world, everybody recognises this, it must be somewhere. Science advisor Shirley tracks it down to the giggle of Stooky Bill. And from that, the Doctor frankly quite wildly extrapolates that, well, this must be hiding in every screen. And now that that everyone has access to a screen, that must be what's caused this. That's pseudo-scientific balderdash, and it really doesn't matter. It's a very who kind of MacGuffin. So back, the Doctor and Donna go in time to find out what went on with Stooky Bill, but not before. The Doctor has given Kate Lethbridge-Stewart permission to destroy the South Korean 
satellite, which she hasn't been able to do before because she needs permission, because obviously that would create an international incident. And all the politicians are affected by this thing. And we do get to see another quite on the nose portrayal of a politician standing at a lectern ranting about how he doesn't care about the little people. Uh, and very clearly uh, a Boris Johnson pastiche and very clearly very on the nose. Uh, I'm going to let it slide because Doctor Who's always been like that. Anyway, back we go. And we return to Mr. Emporium's toy shop, which we saw briefly at the start of the episode with uh, John Leggy Bear's assistant buying Stooky Bill. The Doctor and Donna see this shop and the Doctor surmises that this must be where Stooky Bill was bought from. Again, it's a bit of an assumption, but I suppose a logical one. And it's actually not the reason they go into the shop. They go into the shop because the Doctor looks into the window and sees the toy maker. And clearly there's some recognition there. And so we go in and we see Neil Patrick Harris with his appalling cod German accent, about which more later. And the Doctor actually shows fear. When he realises who he's talking to, he tells Donna to go back to the TARDIS, which he never does. We then get a discussion of, of games and who the toy maker is so that all of that background is filled in. And then there's some running through corridors in the finest tradition of 60 years of Doctor Who for the Doctor and Donna. Uh, some genuinely creepy puppet stuff. Point Donna is attacked by uh, Stooky Bill's wife and children puppets who speak in rhymes. And that gives Donna the opportunity to rhyme Gonna with Donna uh, just before she smashes Stooky Bill's wife two pieces against the wall. It's a very satisfying sequence. Anyway, the toy maker treats Donna to a puppet show explaining how all of the Doctor's companions since her have died. This isn't strictly speaking true, but that is the impression that he gives her. And the Doctor tries to defend each one. This is Amy Pond. Amy Pond died. Sorry, my, my German accent is nearly as bad as Neil Patrick Harris's, but he had an excuse and I don't. So, And the Doctor says, well, Amy Pond died of old age. And switching accents to a sort of American game show thing, the toy maker replies, well, that's all right then. And then we get Clara, who was killed by a bird. But she lives on in the last second of her life. Well, that's all right then. And this is Bill, not Stooky Bill, but Lady Bill. And she was killed by the Cybermen. But her consciousness survives. Well, that's all right then. And we get to see, first of all, not only what an incredibly dangerous thing traveling with a doctor is, but also the immense guilt that the doctor feels about all of those people. And this is becoming a theme in this episode, the guilt and the responsibility that the doctor feels. Then the doctor challenges the toy maker to a game, establishing that if challenged, the toy maker's rules mean that he has to play. The Doctor loses the game, challenges the Toymaker to best out of three, because, of course, all those years ago, William Hartnell beat the Toymaker. So now it's equal, and now there must be a decider. And the Toymaker says, well, we'll do that in 2023, and disappears. Uh, cue everything collapsing, the Doctor and Donna running. Uh, again, a really good joke. As as things start to, to collapse, the Doctor shouts at Donna, and Donna Donna's says, I'm already running! And then back at unit headquarters in 2023, we get... I didn't like this bit. A lot of people really liked it. We get the Doctor going back, very quickly explaining to people what's happening. And then we hear the Spice Girls playing Offset. And suddenly, there is the Toymaker, dancing and lip-syncing 
to the Spice Girls, creating havoc and destroying everything he touches. The unit guards try to intervene. Some are turned into balloons, and we see the, the terrified, screaming faces of the guards in the balloons before the Doctor kind of says to Kate, let's be sure they're dead. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Uh, then other unit guards open fire, and all their bullets turn to flowers. Then suddenly, the toy maker is gone, and he's outside, on the helipad, where the big MacGuffin laser gun, I think they called it a gravitonic beam, whatever, uh, that was used to destroy the South Korean satellite, is still sitting there. And suddenly, he has the gun. Everyone rushes out to the helipad, and David Tennant's doctor is shot by this incredibly powerful weapon, leading to regeneration. And Donna and Mel, his companions, go to support him through his regeneration. And we see the regeneration start and then fizzle out. And it doesn't happen. And instead, the Doctor splits in two. And from the 14th Doctor comes the 15th Doctor. Much in the same way that Athena was birthed from the head of Zeus, I suppose. We get the introduction of Shuti Gatwa as the 15th Doctor, while the 14th Doctor is still there. And they work together, although not together, because they are both the same person, as they point out. And they beat the Celestial Toymaker in his game. And I call him the Celestial Toymaker now because the Doctor had offered to join the Toymaker and take his games to the stars. We could be Celestial, he tells him. And that's important because originally the character was known as the Celestial Toymaker. And this was regarded as a bit racist because Michael Goff, who played the Toymaker originally, was dressed in this sort of Mandarin Chinese outfit. I didn't know this, but apparently celestial was a bit of a slur term, a bit of a, a mocking term for people of Chinese origin back in the day. I didn't know that, but apparently it was. And so I like that acknowledgement that well, we're going to take that word back now and we're going to use it how it's supposed to be used. We could go to the stars. And that's actually where the cod accents come from as well. Uh, every, everybody remembers that the toy maker was a sort of racist character and the accents are there according to Russell T Davis and I quite like this logic to own that to acknowledge that to say look yeah this is a this is a bad guy yes he's a bad guy of course he has terrible opinions of course he appropriates other people's cultures that's what he is and you know we're not celebrating that he's the bad guy and so, you know, we get the cod German accent because, you know what, anyone who's grown up in an Anglophone country watching war films, the Nazis have been the bad guys for a very long time. They all had German accents. Culturally, there is that association. Yes, it's an uncomfortable association now, but it's there. So let's acknowledge it. Uh, he also, you will notice when he's in charge of a very big gun, um, becomes rather British, actually. Rather, rather a, a posh British colonial accent. And of course, we get the American game show host accent as well. So, you know, there's that playing with appropriation and identity and stereotypes going on in Harris's performance of the Toymaker all the way through to the intention of that. Um, but ultimately, he loses the game because, of course, he does and is folded out of existence, literally. In any other show, that would have been. The, the, the final real, huge, climactic ending. Here? Nah, we've still got a third of the show left. In which we get to see the 14th and 15th Doctors interact together 
we get to see that the 14th Doctor needs to stop and heal. And there's even a discussion that, that, that the 14th Doctor resisting stopping says to the 15th, well, you're fine. And the 15th Doctor says, yes, I'm fine because you healed. We're Time Lords. We're doing rehab out of order. And the 15th Doctor comes up with a MacGuffin uh, about how, you know, reality's been a bit messed about with, so maybe we can do this. And he pulls a comedy hammer out of the floor of the TARDIS and hits it, hits the TARDIS with it, and out comes another TARDIS. So now the 14th Doctor can have his copy of a TARDIS. The 15th Doctor takes the original TARDIS, and Russell T. Davis has been very clear. The 15th Doctor has the real, in air quotes, TARDIS here. And we see the 15th Doctor take his leave and disappear off to new adventures, which start on Christmas Day. While the 14th Doctor remains behind, perhaps taking members of the Noble family on day trips through space and time, but basically living in happy retirement as part of Donna's extended family. It was a very satisfying full stop to the sad, traumatised war doctor that we've had really since Eccleston. And now Shooty Catwell gets to be the funky 15th doctor, free of all of that baggage that Russell T Davies, to be fair, gave the doctor in the first place and can set off into his new quest for global domination on Disney Plus around the world as a new thing. Fifteenth Doctor is, as a result of all of this, in effect, a blank slate. For all the very obvious acknowledgements that all of the stuff that has happened previously is still canon and definitely still happened, I'm fairly sure we're not going to be referring back to it all that often, at least not for a while. And in that sense, this was a perfectly crafted episode. But because, of course, nothing happens in a vacuum anymore, there are some issues that some people have had, and I'd like to ac acknowledge and address them, I think. The big criticism that I've seen is that the continued existence of the 14th Doctor in continuity steals some of the 15th Doctor's thunder, and that this, this is unfortunate and a problem because, of course, the 15th Doctor, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the 15th Doctor is the first black Doctor. And some people have commented that it is a pity that at the moment we get our first person of colour to play the character, the Doctor goes from being unique and special to one of many. And some have also commented that it is, is for them a little problematic that when the 15th Doctor turns up, what you have is a young black man essentially operating as a, an emotional caregiver for the old white dude. And I'm going to be really honest and say these are not issues that would ever have occurred to me if somebody hadn't pointed them out. I'm pretty sure they had not occurred to Russell T. Davis either. I am absolutely certain that such a thing was not Russell T. Davis's intention, and authorial intent is always important. But, but, both Russell T. Davis and myself are middle-aged, middle-class, white men. We should not ever 
hear such criticism and just dismiss it. That That's not something we should do. That kind of thinking has got all sorts of people into all sorts of trouble in the past. So my initial reaction when somebody who I know pointed this out to me, so, you know, not, not a close friend, but certainly a, a, a good acquaintance pointed this out to me. My initial reaction for a split second was, oh, come on now. But it only took a second's thought for me to think, actually, yes, I don't think that was the intention, but I do see that you've got a point. Now, I don't know what we do about that. As I say, I'm, I'm absolutely certain this was not intentional. And so it's certainly the case that this two doctors existing at the same time and, and not having that regeneration episode essentially be a death episode, have it be you know, something where the torch can be actually passed. I, I get that that was something that Russell T. Davis had wanted to do for a long time. I like it as a, as a thing. I'm glad we didn't have that I don't want to go moment again. So should they not have done it? because the incoming doctor was a person of colour? Or should we have waited and not cast a person of colour so that we could do that? You know, both of those things are ridiculous. Of course not. So could it have been handled better? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, actually. And I think if Russell T. Davies had thought of it, he would have handled it better. But he didn't think of it because, of course, he didn't. Because, like me, he's a middle-aged, middle-class white guy who doesn't have to think in the, in his everyday life about this stuff. So he didn't. And I'm not excusing it. Uh, what I am saying is I understand why he didn't. What I trust and hope, and you know the jury's out on this, we'll have to see. What I trust and hope is that the future of the Doctor and future shows demonstrate very clearly that the real Doctor is Shuti Gatwa and that this Doctor Emeritus... If you, I've heard him called the family doctor, which I quite like. He's an irrelevance now. He's properly sidelined. He might turn up for a cameo here and there in a unit show or even in the main show. But he's he's granddad now. He's the old guy and not what the show or the story or reality is actually about. I trust and hope that that will be the case. That's up to the people now making the show to do the right thing about. So we'll see other criticisms. Um, I I get that some people were, were kind of like, well, hang on a minute. We're too politically correct to put Davros in a wheelchair, but suddenly we can have a cod German accent on a villain. Yeah, I get that objection. I, as I said earlier, uh, I, I understand. Again, I understand what Russell T. Davis was doing there. Uh, he was playing with those tropes and those stereotypes, which I think is legit. And I, I actually I think it's a good thing if Neil Patrick Harris's cod German accent made a few people uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable a little bit. And do you know what? As a British audience, after however many decades it's now been of two world wars and one World Cup, rah rah, rah rah, um you know, maybe maybe we should start feeling uncomfortable about having cod German accents be synonymous with evil. Maybe that is a trope that we should start thinking, oh hang on. So yeah, I think that was the intention. I think we were supposed to react with a little bit of discomfort to, to that. And so, again, I, I, I think that was a narrative choice that was being made. And I'm, I'm fine with it as long as we, you know, we, we still clearly have a show that is overtly not racist. 
because at the moment the show is very, very definitely overtly, perhaps even self-consciously, not racist. And while I might sometimes think that's a little bit on the nose, and occasionally maybe even a little jarring, I am never going to say that being overtly not racist is a bad thing. There was a lot I really loved, just tiny touches I really loved about this show as well. Um, our science advisor, our wheelchair-using science advisor, was out of her wheelchair and in a different chair in this episode. I love to see that. I love it. Because I, I, maybe it's because, uh, for, for various reasons of personal history, I've been hanging around people who use wheelchairs since I was a teenager. And so I know that people who use wheelchairs routinely often aren't, to use a, a horrible, outmoded term, wheelchair bound. Uh, they can get in and out of their chair. They can't stand for long periods. They maybe can't walk very far. That's why they use a chair. But, you know, they're not paralysed from the waist down. That's not the only reason to use a wheelchair. And I like that we have somebody who is just demonstrating that. And it's not being made a thing of. People can just see it. I, I said this last week and I'm saying it again. I love to see that. I also really loved what Russell T. Davis did here. And I think perhaps because Russell T. Davis is uh, very out and proud about being gay and gets flack for that, he's had to deal with people being snide about an aspect of him his entire career. And I think he's he's therefore sensitive to the kind of snideness that can come in with other minorities, such as people who use wheelchairs. And so one of the things we got in Kate Lethbridge-Stewart's rant when she had the magic MacGuffin to stop her going crazy taken off was she rounds on Shirley, the science ad advisor, and says, And you! I've seen you walk! in your, You in your chair! And... Then, obviously, when she comes back to her senses and she's freed from the influence of the giggle, she's she's mortified. And I think that was not just a nice narrative beat, a nice story beat. It was a direct response to the comeback that he knew was going to happen on social media when he had a character in a wheelchair who can walk and cross her legs. I, he anticipated that, and so he put a response to it in the script. That is fabulous writing, and that is representation done properly. And I flipping well love Russell T. Davies for that. I also love that the Doctor shows Shirley that the there is now a, a fold-out wheelchair access ramp on the TARDIS. So the TARDIS is now properly accessible, and you know all of those ramps inside the TARDIS, we are seeing her in her chair going around those fairly soon, I am sure. But he shows her this wheelchair access ramp and then doesn't let her in the TARDIS. I liked that too, because that's not only a fun comedy beat. It tells us something about the personality of the Doctor. And also, again, as somebody who knows a lot of people who use wheelchairs, it fairly represents the experience of people who use a wheelchair day to day. In that lots of people talk about access. Lots of people might even you know, do something to, at least on the surface make things accessible to wheelchair users. But it doesn't necessarily mean that wheelchair users can actually use them. I, it's, it's just a lovely little touch, which I, I hugely enjoyed. Something else I spotted, and I've gone back and checked this, and I don't think I've heard it mentioned anywhere else. I've not listened to a huge amount of 
comment, you know, sort of official reviews of this. So somebody else may have spotted it, but I've not seen it anywhere. Um, I, I, I've certainly listened to Verity's review. I don't remember them mentioning it. But in the, the conversation around the, the, the table in, in Donna's sunny garden, and um, clearly they did buy that house with the lottery money. They do. They, there is a thing in the first episode about how the massive lottery win that the Doctor engineers for Donna, she mostly gave away, but they did pay for the house. That's the only way they're affording a house in London with that garden. That's all I'm saying. But anyway, obviously, Grandad Wilf is not around that table because Bernard Cribbins was not well enough to shoot. But we are told that Will Wilf is off shooting moles, um, which is not a thing as far as I'm aware, but never mind. And the fact that it's so artificial makes me think that this must have been deliberate. The doctor's response is, yeah, but, you know, I've given the moles force fields. I love a mole. And that, I knew I'd heard that before somewhere. And it took me a minute, but I did remember. The first time we see David Tennant as the doctor is not that first Christmas special with the Sycorax. No. No, he regenerates at the end of season one and turns from Chris Eccleston into David Tennant. And he does that whole mm, new teeth. Weird. And then there was, I can't remember because it was a long time ago now. I can't remember if it was a Children in Need or a Red Nose Day little insert. But there's a scene that was shot for either Red Nose Day or Children in Need in which we get the immediate aftermath of that where Billy Piper as Rose is like, who are you? Bring the doctor back kind of thing. And the doctor is kind of, you know, having another hmm, new teeth. Weird. Is running through his other aperture. Oh, and there's a mole on my back. I love a mole. So one of the first things David Tennant says as the doctor is, I love a mole. And one of the last things he says in this episode is, I love a mole. And that, that cannot, cannot be a coincidence. I simply don't believe it. That must have been done on purpose. And I love it because it's so niche and such a Russell T. Davis thing to do. That is so meta and self-referential. It's almost annoying, but it isn't because it's so utterly charming. I love that touch. So, yeah, were there things that were less than perfect? And were there things that will have left a slightly sour taste in the mouths of quite a lot of people? Yeah, yeah, there were. And I, I think it would be ridiculous to not acknowledge that. But, but, was it a good finale? Yes. It was a very Russell T. Davis finale. I mean, it can be quite cavalier with plot points. So the whole of the world was in chaos and then it wasn't. And, you know, it's, it's acknowledged that many people will have died and we're never going to hear about that again, ever. But it was creepy as all heck. Um, I love those puppets. I mean, I hated those puppets, so I love those puppets. It, I, I thought Neil Patrick Harris was brilliant as the toy maker. Exactly the right amount of over the top. Nice to see Mel, and it looks as though she's going to be a recurring character in something, maybe. I, I'm, I think we actually already know that she's going to appear with Shuji Gatwa in the next season. So, you know, there's that. I, I love to see Unit. I'm always, I've always been a Unit fan. I remember watching Third Doctor stories on BBC Two at tea time when I was a kid, and I liked that he was part of Unit. I always thought that was fun. So you know there was that. I think I think some of the concern about 
the the 15th doctor being you know having his thunder slightly stolen by the 14th i think that's a, that's a uniquely british issue uh, my international friends tell me that although the three specials are on disney plus globally uh, at least they are in north america and australia i can tell you that disney plus have not really promoted them and russell t davis has said that the big promotion globally on disney plus is going to come with the christmas special and shooty gatwa's first full episode and so for a huge chunk of new audience shooty gatwa will be the only doctor they've ever known and so any hangover is just that yeah it's not going to be a thing i think for most fans if doctor who takes off in the way that russell t davis expects so and i think we need to let all of the problematic things which i acknowledge about this episode just settle for a bit until we've seen where Doctor Who is going in the future. Overall, I am astonishingly positive about the whole thing. I, I think Doctor Who is in the strongest position it's been in for a very long time, perhaps ever. And I think it might now have a shot at becoming the truly global franchise that it could always have been. There will be risks and pitfalls along the way. All kinds of people who don't know or love Doctor Who the way I do are going to be getting involved. There's going to be all kinds of money getting caught up in things. The potential for disaster is high, but it's going to be fun finding out, isn't it? I guess 6.30, BBC One, Christmas Day is when we get to find out. I am really, really looking forward to it. I don't think I've had this amount of excited anticipation for new Doctor Who since Christopher Eccleston came back and for Autons around the London Eye. It's been that long since I've been this excited about new Doctor Who. Which perhaps is why this review of a single episode has been nearly as long as the episode. But it is time, I think, to move on. We are so very nearly out of time, but we do have time to squeeze in just a little bit of news. This news really changes everything. And once again, the jingles hyper early because this news doesn't change anything at all. What it does do, though, is... Ah, well, what does it do? Okay, Elon Musk. I, I can't keep this guy out of the news. Two things have happened with the Muskmeister, and both... Oh, ooh. well, OK, so over on the hell site, Musk has continued to double down on his increasingly, well, let's just call them far right posturings. I think that's probably the safest thing to say. Uh, he's letting Alex Jones, the um, utterly disgraced radio presenter, I'm not going to call him anything other than that, um, who went out of his way to make the, the grieving parents of some victims of a mass shooting not just miserable but actually targets of abuse he's he's back on twitter now and is going to be doing a thing with musk as, as I, I don't have the details I, I couldn't bear to read the story too closely but i 
I think that is symbolic of the utter, utter pyre that Twitter has become. I, I, I know that some people are still finding it useful. And uh, you know what? Good luck to all of those people. Anyone who's getting any kind of usefulness out of Twitter right now. I, good. I'm glad it's good for something. But increasingly, it's becoming just a a melting pot for hate speech, which is, you know, from my point of view, a bad thing. That's not Musk's only issue, though. Uh, I, I can't see that the advertisers he so clearly wants to get back are going to be flocking back to Twitter under these circumstances. If anything, he's devalued the brand even more than he already had. But he's also now got issues with Tesla. There has been a massive recall of Teslas in the USA. I think it's just the USA that's issued a recall. But this technology is in every Tesla built since 2015, I think. So this is going to be an issue in Europe at some point. It's going to be a, an issue elsewhere in the world at some point. There is an issue with the autopilot, which, contrary to what the name suggests, is not actually an autopilot. But there is an, a safety issue with the autopilot that requires a patch. Now, this is not a recall where everyone who owns a Tesla is going to have to take their Tesla back to the garage. There's going to be um, a software update that will allegedly sort this out. Uh, my use of the word allegedly there is mostly down to my increasing lack of trust in everything that Tesla says and does. And that, I'm afraid, is entirely due to its association with Elon Musk. At some point, investors surely are going to start wondering whether investing in anything that's touched by Musk is worth doing. And that's why this is news. That's why this is a problem for Elon Musk, because there's a limit. Even if you're a billionaire, there's a limit to how much you can achieve on your own. And the more Musk does things like this, the more he has issues with the things he builds that people like, like Tesla's, and the more he trashes something that people loved, like Twitter, the more he makes himself toxic. It's not his brands now that are toxic. It's Musk himself that I think people are beginning to, to realise isn't the genius he pretended to be. Now, this could just be a moment of zeitgeist. In other news, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the cryptocurrency fraudster, is you know facing a lifetime in prison because of some of the things he did and people who were lauding him for being like the you know the most intelligent guy in the room a real wonderkind are now realizing that in fact he was never that smart and the things that people were interpreting as signs of his genius were in fact just massive red flags pointing out how out of his depth and and not good at what he was doing he actually was so it may just be that the moment has come that everyone's getting a bit cynical about tech bros. And maybe that moment will pass and Musk will be fine, but I'm not sure. I think he may have done irreparable damage to his reputation at this point. And of course, that has other knock-on effects. The, the only thing that I associate now with Elon Musk that isn't tarnished is SpaceX. But Musk is vocally very much in control of SpaceX. And it's not. it surely isn't going to be too long before people like NASA, who are quite risk averse and very, very protective of their reputation, are going to start wondering if, you know what, maybe we don't want to be talking to SpaceX quite so much. Maybe we want to be talking to Blue Origin and Boeing a little bit more about this stuff. If that happens, that is going to put a lot of NASA's plans 
years, years behind schedule. And so all of these things have consequences. Everything is interlinked. And what seems like a, a trivial bit of newsy gossip about what's going on on Twitter can knock on to so many other things. It's genuinely, I think, quite concerning. Oh, God, the news is so depressing right now. And so, do you know what? I think for the sake of everybody's sanity, we're going to move on. This news really changes everything. And because I have talked so long about Doctor Who, and honestly, do you know what? I've still got more to say. Surely that's got to be the sign of a really good show that I've talked for well over 40 minutes about an episode and I've still got more to add. But because I spoke for so long about Doctor Who, that really is pretty much all we've got time for now. Uh, as I'm as I'm recording this, I'm watching the time counter tick past 57 minutes. So I don't, I don't think there's very much I can get done in three minutes, really. I will point out that um, comics artists do not die rich as a rule. Uh, Ian Gibson certainly didn't. Uh, so if you are somebody who has enjoyed Ian Gibson's work over the, over the years and you've had some pleasure out of it, uh, you might want to consider giving something back. Uh, Ian Gibson's family has launched a, a crowdfunder for uh, for some help with you know covering funeral expenses and that kind of thing. I, 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 it's tragic that they need to do that, but they do. And I, for one, am happy to, to kick in a, a few quid. So if anybody else wants to, uh, I have linked to the appropriate crowdfunder uh, on my Blue Sky, and I will stick a link into the show notes that I am definitely going to do uh, at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. So you can follow a link from there as well. Just look for uh, Geeking with Destination Venus episode 107 on the Destination Venus website, and uh, you'll find not just that link, but also some brilliant examples of Ian Gibson's absolute genius. Uh, so that's my geek community notice board uh, for the week. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? What else do I need to tell you? Um, that's about it, actually. Um, we will be back next week with the final episode before 2020 and the final regular edition of geeking of 2023. Uh, the the Rest of 2023 will be taken up with pre-recorded episodes about stuff. I'm not going to do a review of the year this year because, well, to be brutally frank, 2023, from my personal point of view, has been an absolute <laughs> show. And I have no desire to particularly go back over it. So um, no review of the year this year. Uh, but there will be some festive Christmassy nonsense. How about that? But that is it. For now, at least. All that remains is to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production. And that until we see you next time, please do what the 15th Doctor says. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. And above all else, stay geeky. We are going to leave you with the historic moment when the 14th Doctor meets the 15th Doctor for the very first time we'll be back next week until then there's only one thing left to say and that is a hearty alan z see you soon <laughs> 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 <laughs>
So good! Now, someone tell me what the hell is going on here. 